The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 8th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. not sure if you read it when you were in school or not, but John Steinbeck, one of the great American authors, wrote this epic novel called East of Eden. And he based his novel East of Eden off the Old Testament story of Cain and Abel, and it's his own working out of the story of human betrayal and human doubt and human pain and redemption and identity. And there's this great point in the story, I won't, I won't give it all away, where one of the brothers in this story in this family is talking with one of his friends. And there's this poignant moment in the conversation, but he says this. He looks at his friend and he says, you are one of those rare people who can separate your observation from your preconception. He said, you see what is where most people see what only they expect. And if you just think about that for just a minute, How many of you in your own life and in your own experience can attest to the fact that so much disappointment, disillusionment, doubt, and even discouragement comes in the wake of of unmet expectations that we have on other people in our own hearts? You think about your friendships, your relationships, you think about your careers, you think about your relationships with organizations, with other people, with leaders, all of it. If you're really honest, how much, how much struggle, how much disillusionment and doubt and discouragement really is just coming in the wake of some form of unmet expectation that you had on those people or those things. If you're honest with yourself and you can begin to see that play out in your own heart, in your own life, would you be willing to consider If it's that true of your relationships with one another, how much more so is it true of our relationship with God himself? I mean, if there was ever someone that we are guilty of viewing through the lens of our own set of expectations rather than what has clearly been seen or heard, it's him. As a result, bringing our own expectations to the Lord at times can leave us sometimes experiencing disappointment disillusionment, discouragement, even doubt. Yet on the other hand, if we consider the observation that Steinbeck made in his book, when we see what really is in relation to Jesus, rather than simply seeing him through the lens of our own expectations of him, on the other side of that, you and I have the promise of God of a life of blessedness, a life of simply seeing and more deeply enjoying who he truly is for us. As we come to God's Word together this morning in Matthew chapter 11, I want you to know that Matthew 11 and Matthew 12 are a series of stories that really unpack for the reader mixed expectations and mixed responses to who Jesus really is. And this morning, as we continue in our Advent series, longing, anticipating, looking forward, I want us to consider the first story in Matthew chapter 11, one that we're probably at least familiar with the players in the story, if we're not familiar with the story itself. It, it starts in verse 1, so let me begin to read for us, and then we'll, we'll see what God has for us here. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. 
But now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So let's stop there. We're, let me try to set the stage of, of what's happening at this point in the story if you're not super familiar with all that's going on. The John that Matthew is referring to here is not the John that would be a disciple of Jesus that would write the gospel according to John later on, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. This is John the Baptist, and not Baptist by denomination, better understood as John the Baptizer. Up to this point in the story, John has been a very big player in the religious world in Israel at that time. John had gone out into the desert wearing these wild clothes, eating these wild food with this wild eye, wild look in his eye, and begun to proclaim the kingdom of God has come. He began to proclaim God's word, and guess what happened? Thousands of people flocked out to see him. Thousands of people flocked out to hear him. People began to follow John where he would go and where he would teach. He was a very big player in the religious world in that day. John had a habit in preaching the word of God to God's people of calling out the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies of the religious leaders of the day. He would proclaim the justice and the judgment of God to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And John would also go as far as to call out the immoral living of the, of the political leaders of the day. In particular, John openly challenged the way that Herod was living. And Herod, to some degree, was okay with John calling out the religious leaders, but calling out his way of living had gone too far. So Herod put John in prison. And that's where we find John in Matthew chapter 11. But prior to finding himself in prison for calling out Herod's way of living, back over here in the beginning, when John had gone out into the wilderness and began to proclaim the word of God, he had a curious encounter with Jesus. Jesus went out into the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized by John. And if you read Matthew's account of it in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus encountered John out in the wilderness to hear him speak and to be baptized by him, John said, no, I'm not the one that should baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus would say, no, 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 that's, I'm here and this is what we need to do. But in between John's preaching and his encounter with Jesus and, and John finding himself in prison, Matthew tells us that John has heard of the works of Jesus. And what Matthew's done in his gospel, if you go back and read it, is that in Matthew 5 through 10, he has unpacked for us in detail what those works are that John has heard. In Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 7, we get what you may be familiar with as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' great teaching of what life in his kingdom is really all about. In Matthew 8 and 9, right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gives us just a series, it's all like rapid-fire collection of miracles and works that Jesus did. The deaf got their hearing back, the blind got their sight, the dead were raised, the lepers were cleansed, the storms, nature was calmed under his authority. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, after teaching his disciples, sends them out in pairs to proclaim the, the gospel, the good news that he was proclaiming to God's people. So John's in prison now and he's hearing what Jesus is doing and he hears that Jesus is teaching, he's here, he's doing miracles, he hears he's training and sending out his people. And he gathers his disciples to himself to come see him while he's in prison. And John says, go ask Jesus a question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? If you read it like a human, it's a very curious question at this point, isn't it? 
I mean, isn't John the one who in another gospel story in the Bible when he encounters Jesus in the wilderness doesn't just say, I'm not fit to baptize you. He sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How is it at this point that someone who seemed to so clearly see who Jesus really is now seems to so clearly doubt that very thing? He seems to so clearly be disillusioned by something. Well, again, if you read it like a human, there there is the fact that John is indeed in prison. John is suffering in prison for challenging Herod's way of living. John is awaiting word of his own death, his own possible death at the hands of Herod. I mean, who here can attest to the reality that sometimes in life, Difficult circumstances can carry with them the baggage of disappointment. That difficult circumstances like sickness and pain and discomfort, broken situations, can produce doubt and discouragement in our heart and even drain us utterly of everything we have emotionally. I think about John sitting there in prison for proclaiming God's word and and being locked up away for it and possibly facing death. And I think about Elijah in the Old Testament, who again, like John, had this prophetic role to him to proclaim God's word to his people, but dared to challenge the rulers of his day. Challenge King Ahab and challenge Queen Jezebel. But on the backside of that direct challenge, do you remember what happened? John, I mean, Elijah was so scared for his life that he ran out into the wilderness and hid in a cave and wanted to die. Just utterly undone from the whole thing. So sure, being in prison the way that John was, facing the threat of death, that, that can do a number on someone's heart, someone's soul, someone's mind. Is that what's happening here? Is that why John seems to be doubting? Honestly, friends, I think what we see here in John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 is is the expression of of a doubt and a discouragement and a disillusionment that comes from having unmet expectations. The same thing you and I are so intimately familiar with with, on our life here on earth. You see, John, along with the rest of God's people, they had a very particular expectation of what the one that God had promised was to be like. They had a very particular expectation of what the one, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, was going to be like and what he was going to do. If you were with us last week, you might remember as we were going through 1 Samuel, we got to the place in the story where God's people demanded of God a king of their own, a king that was going to be like the other nations. It was in this king who acted in a particular way that they were going to find their sense of security and prosperity and well-being. And as we saw last week, God would give them the very thing their hearts desired. And from that point forward, they would suffer the consequences of that misplaced confidence and that misplaced affection And from that point to the point we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11, God's people for centuries have been longing for and anticipating, adventing, so to speak, the one that God had promised. God had said, I was going to give you a king, a king of my own choosing. We asked for a king of our own and chose a king of our own. Oh, when is the one coming that God has promised? God's people have been looking for and expecting the promised Christ, the Messiah, the King that God had said he would give. And so for John and for the rest of God's people at that time, the one that God would send, 
the one that was to come was a king that was going to finally set God's people free. He was the one that was going to overthrow, overthrow the oppressive rule of the nations. The one who's going to overthrow the oppressive rule that they were experiencing at that time at the hand of the Romans. He was going to be the one that was going to execute God's justice and God's judgment on his enemies. He was going to be the one that was going to redistribute the resources of God's kingdom amongst his people. He was going to be the one that was going to empower God's people. The one that God was going to send, the one that was to come, the Christ, the king, he was going to be a king. He was going to conquer. He was going to rule. He was going to win. And so here's John languishing in prison having been obedient to God, proclaiming God's word, proclaiming his kingdom being present, proclaiming the one that God had promised to come was here. This is the Christ, he said of Jesus. Why the doubt? D.A. Carson, great theologian, he was considering this text and reading it a bit like a human, thinking about John He said, if we get in John's mind, it's fair to say that John would think it was okay for Jesus to heal the sick. It's okay for Jesus to raise the dead, cast out demons, still the storms, preach righteousness, announce the kingdom. But where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and the cruelties of Caesar been abruptly shut down? Had the hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod been confronted? Why was he... John, why am I, John, languishing in the prison for challenging the morals of Herod while Jesus, Jesus, the alleged Messiah and King, did nothing about the injustice? Great. I hear of the works that he's doing. I concede he's a better teacher than I am. He speaks with way more authority than I do. I would want nothing less than to see those who have no food, who are hungry, be fed. Praise God. He's given you the power for the deaf to hear and the blind to see. Why am I still here? If you're the king, why, why is Herod still calling the shots? If you're the king, why is Rome still setting the rule and setting the standard? If you read it like a human, there's a moment for John where it would seem utterly reasonable with the expectations that he had to sit there and go, did I miss it? Did I get it wrong? Is this Jesus really just an anointed teacher? A, A prophet of old who God's empowered to do good things for his people? But not the one that I was supposed to be looking for. Is Jesus just another good man who's shown up on the scene? Or or is he the one? It's a reasonable question if you think about it. It's a reasonable question even now. James Boyce, who's a great pastor in Philadelphia decades ago, he he tells the story of a, a rabbi that he had befriended that was in New York. And this particular rabbi told him a story of a time when a Christian had witnessed to him and but tried to help him understand that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the promised King of God that had come. And Boyce said this rabbi looked at his friend who was witnessing to him, and after listening to him for a while, not arguing, not going back and forth, he asked his friend to go look out the window of his office and tell him what he saw. 
And so his friend did exactly as the rabbi asked. He went, he looked out the window, and the rabbi asked him this. Do you see our city and all of its corruption, all of its distortion? Do you see it unchanged? And his friend said, yes. And the rabbi said, well, when the true king comes, real justice will finally come for God's people. See, John had a particular expectation of the king that he was expecting. And John wasn't alone in this. Even Jesus' disciples wrestled with the expectations they had of Jesus. Chapters later, after this encounter with John and his disciples, Jesus is going to be with his own disciples, teaching and traveling with them. And he's going to look at his disciples and he's going to ask them a question. Who do people say that I am? You remember the story? Some of you remember the story? Then he asks a more specific question. Who do you say that I am? And if you're familiar with the story, you know Peter gets the answer right. Impetuous, impulsive Peter jumps in. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God has promised, the Son of God. Jesus looked at Peter and blessed are you, Simon. The man has not revealed this to you, right? Well, do you know what happens on the backside of that story? See, you and I read that story knowing the end, right? Peter didn't know the end when that happened. On the backside of that story, Jesus begins to tell his disciples how he has to set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And do you remember what Peter said? The one who said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Peter said, no way. That's not going to happen to you, Jesus. You know why? Because kings don't suffer and die like that. Kings win. God's king was coming to overthrow the rule, to set the long-awaited eternal kingdom in place, not to come and be sacrificed, not to come and die. That's not going to happen to you because that's not the king we're looking for. Do you realize, even as Jesus continued to teach and to tell his disciples what was going to happen in Jerusalem and what was going to happen after Jerusalem, that when they all gathered in the upper room on the other side of the cross, they weren't there waiting for Sunday worship service? You realize that? Even after he had explained to them who he was and what he was doing. They still had a different expectation and they had no concept in their mind in that moment for the resurrection. So when Jesus shows up on that morning, they're absolutely astonished because they weren't expecting it. They had a particular expectation of the king that they were looking for. How could the king that God would send be the one who would die at the hands of the Romans? You know, John and Jesus' disciples, they they aren't alone in their misguided expectations. There's a man many of you might be familiar with, and his story is going to be pretty familiar as well. His name is George Whitfield. If you're not familiar with Whitfield, Whitfield is one of the greatest preachers in the English language. He was used by God in what's known as the Great Awakening. He's actually from England, but much of his ministry occurred over here in the States. He would come to the States, he would preach, he would travel a circuit. And God used his preaching mightily. Well, Whitfield got married late in his life, and he only had one son. And while he was here in the States preaching, he got word that his only son had gotten very sick. 
So Whitfield began to pray. He began to gather people to pray, people in England and people in the States. They fasted and they prayed for the well-being of his son. And Whitfield wrote in his journals at one point that one time in prayer, praying for his son one morning, he felt a very gentle and very strong reassurance from God that his son was going to not fall to death from his sickness. Whitfield, having received that sense of assurance and received that confidence from God as he was praying and reading God's Word, began to tell people when he would preach while he was in the States, while his son was sick, God is going to heal him. This is the reassurance and the confidence that I have from the Lord. In a matter of about four weeks from that point in his journal, Whitfield's only son died. Whitfield went into a six-month depression that was so dark he wanted to take his own life. He had no category in his heart at that point for God not meeting the expectation that he thought he was going to meet. He wrestled, he writes about it in his own journal. How could he at this point now understand anything that God was going to do if he had been so wrong about what he thought God was supposed to do for his son? Friends, you are not the first person to feel doubt, to feel disillusionment, to feel any sense of discouragement when you go through different things in your life and you find yourself wondering, I thought it was supposed to be different with this king. I I thought it was supposed to turn out differently. John is not simply a friend to those who wrestle with these realities. John, for us, is even an example example of what we do with this doubt and disillusionment. I don't know if you caught it. I I had not caught it until recently, and someone helped me to see it. But do you realize that in John sending his disciples to Jesus, he has his disciples ask a very particular question of Jesus. He doesn't demand that Jesus solve his problems and fix his crisis in order to prove to John that he really is who he says he is. Do you realize how utterly different what John does is from what you and I often do? As some theologians say, you and I often approach God, often approach Jesus with what they call a problem-centered approach to reality. If you're really who you say you are, if you're really the king, If you're really the one that God said was going to come, fix this problem, change this issue, solve this situation, get me out of this crisis, and then I'll know you're really who you say you are. Do you realize that behind that demand of Jesus, which is not a question at all, behind that demand of God and demand of Jesus is the expression of the human heart that says, I really don't want to know whether or not you want something different for me than what I want for myself. It's ultimately an expression of not really wanting to know the real Jesus in the first place. See, John doesn't bring any kind of demand to Jesus at this point. He doesn't demand that Jesus fix his life and get him out of prison in order to know who he is. He asks the most reasonable question imaginable. Are you the one? I mean, if you really think about it, if you and I have not come to terms with who Jesus really is in relation to what he has said about himself and what he has done, how could we ever presume in our humanity to know what the right thing is that he should do? It's foolish. It's backwards. 
he asked the most reasonable question imaginable. Are you the one? And then he says one of the most profound things we've been seeing throughout our entire journey in 1 Samuel, believe it or not. Or should we look for another? If you're not really the king, if you're not going to be the one who is going to establish our identity, if you're not going to be the one who we look to to secure our prosperity, our well-being, if you're not going to be the one who is going to secure that for us now and forever, we're going to go have to look for another one because every heart has to have a king. If you weren't with us last week, this is what we looked at in the end of 1 Samuel 8. Every heart will look for a king. If you reject Jesus as the rightful king of your heart, you will go out on a lifelong quest of trying to find a substitute king to sit on the throne of your heart and provide for you what only God can in his son. Are you the one? Or do I have to keep looking? Friends, be honest with yourself for just a moment. John's doubt and discouragement and even disillusionment, it seems very familiar, doesn't it? What seems so unfamiliar at times is how Jesus responds. Jesus does not respond the way that if we're really honest with ourselves, we expect him to respond. When someone responds to you in a relationship or a situation that you can pick up on, they're expecting something of you that they weren't to be expecting, how do you respond to them? Make them feel bad for what they said? Do you respond sharply to them? Do you scold them? How could you do that? How could you think that? Jesus doesn't scold John for his doubt. He doesn't shame John in his doubt. He realizes his doubt is exactly what it is. It's doubt. Doubt and discouragement are not the same thing as unbelief. We don't have time to delve into it too deeply, but a man named Oz Guinness wrote a tremendous book about a decade ago. It's about this very thing, the difference between unbelief and doubt. It's called living between two minds. That's exactly what doubt is. Jesus recognizes the reality of what's going on in John's heart. And so he gives the answer back to his disciples. Rather than scolding John, rather than demeaning John or shaming John, Jesus responds to John through his disciples by clarifying the expectations John should have of Jesus and his agenda. He helps John to see, in terms of Scott Steinbeck's quote, what is, rather than just trying to see Jesus through the lens of John's own expectations. Listen to what Jesus says. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, Jesus did a couple curious things there that John would have picked up on, and many of the readers and listeners would have picked up on when this was written. In his answer to John, through John's disciples, Jesus strung together different portions from the prophet Isaiah. And that's important. Because John would have been very familiar with the prophet Isaiah. John most likely would have memorized Isaiah. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 3, when John introduces himself in his ministry, he quotes Isaiah 40 to introduce himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness. He identifies himself with what Isaiah said was coming. So Isaiah is John's jam. He gets it, right? 
So when Jesus takes portions of Isaiah, strings them together, he knows something true about John. John's going to hear what he's familiar with, and he's going to understand the context of what's happening. And if you've grown up reading the Bible, or, or there are particular portions of the Bible that are, that are near and dear to your heart that you've memorized and you've thought about, you know all you have to do is hear a portion of it. And the context of what's happening is all filtering through your mind. Jesus knows this is going to be true with John. So when he strings together these quotes, he's stringing together pieces of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. See, Isaiah 35 says this, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Isaiah 61, he's quoting something that comes from this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And when John hears what Jesus sends back by way of his disciples, the fullness of those things comes in. And guess what John realizes? Jesus left a few things out. Jesus didn't quote the whole context. He didn't quote the whole context for specific purposes. You see, John would have realized that Jesus left out from Isaiah 35, right before he says the eyes of the blind will be opened, he says the one to come, who he's speaking of himself, is going to strengthen feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. He's going to say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He's going to come to save you. Jesus left that part out. Isaiah 61. When Jesus gives these strings of Isaiah back to John and John's filtering through his mind, When Isaiah says that good news is preached to the poor, it follows that by saying the ministry of the one to come was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God. Jesus left those pieces out. Why? Jesus is reframing in the most gentle way for John, but the most clear way for John from God's word, exactly what the expectation John is to have of Jesus in his ministry now. Jesus is reframing for John the agenda of what he's doing as God's king. And stringing together what he strung together for John and sent back to him, it's Jesus saying, look at what you see, John. What do you hear? I'm him. I'm the one. Everything you're hearing about, all of these works you're hearing about, they're the authentications of the fullness of what God has promised. In fact, the, re- the miracles that Matthew records in chapters 8 and 9, those works that he's doing, are the exact things Isaiah prophesied here. The very things Jesus sent back to John saying that's what was going to happen when the one to come comes. I'm him, John. What do you see? What have you heard? This is my agenda. Right now, the expectation of the one that God was to send is to be the proclamation of good news, not final judgment. The ministry of Jesus was the establishment of his kingdom. It's here, John. I'm here. But the fullness of it isn't going to happen yet. That day is coming, John. But it's not happened yet. Right now, my agenda, the agenda of the king, is to proclaim good news. That's the second radical thing Jesus says to John. First is leaving out portions that John was expecting. 
The second is in setting his agenda in the context of proclaiming good news. That good news was a very loaded term that encapsulates the word that you and I translate as gospel. That wasn't a word that people used lightly. In fact, if you've been in church for an extended period of your life or any period of time, you've probably heard the the word gospel a lot. And you've probably assumed that it was a church word or a religious word. It's not. Historically, gospel is a political word. Gospel meant good news, and it went along with a public announcement that a a new king or a new leader or a new victory had been won. Someone new was in charge, and in this new realm, a new way of living was coming. And with this new way of living, there were expectations, blessings, and obligations of those who lived in that realm for their well-being and for their security. In fact, we actually have the bulletin, historically, of Octavian when he became emperor. And it starts this way. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Good news for those who live now in this realm. Something has happened for you. A new man is in charge, and with his charge, he's bringing a new way of life. Jesus reshapes John's expectations of his ministry in this time as one of proclaiming good news. Something indeed has been done. There has been a life-altering, cataclysmic event. Something has changed. There is a new king who's establishing a new realm, who ushers in a new way of living and a new well-being for all of those in his kingdom. Friends, do you realize when you hear this good news, you hear this word gospel, it's the proclamation that something has been done. When you and I talk about gospel, we talk about good news. We're not just talking about another theory, another teaching, another philosophy. It is the announcement, it is the proclamation that something has been done for you. A new kingdom has been established. A new king sits on the throne. And there is a new way of well-being for those who live within this kingdom. Do you realize that this gospel announcement This proclamation of Jesus is utterly different than every other philosophy and religion in the history of the world. We don't have time to go into it. I'm sure in a quick class at some point we'll we'll talk about all these different things. But you can look at Buddhism. You can look at Islam. You can look at Mormonism. All of them detail the history of how a particular leader came to learn what they would call the way of salvation and then disseminate that to people. You realize that, right? Christianity is the only thing in the history of mankind that says there isn't a particular leader that learned the way of salvation, but he himself is indeed the way of salvation. He indeed is the gospel. You realize everything else is about what someone's had to learn. Christianity is truly the only real gospel, the only real good news the only real declaration that in someone something has been done for you. A new kingdom has been established. A new king is reigning. A new way of life has been opened up through him. What he's saying here is reshaping all of the expectation that people are to have on him as the king in the now. As they wait for what's not yet come. Go tell John the king has come. What does he see? What does he hear? 
Friends, from this point forward, just as he would tell his disciples, this king is going to humble himself. And he is going to die in the place of those he came to save. This king is the very way of salvation himself. And he's utterly different than everything else. Go tell John. What does he see? What does he hear? This is what I am here to do. These are the days of God's favor. These are the days of God's grace. Good news, gospel is being proclaimed. Men, women, and children can receive access into this kingdom. Go and tell John. Go and tell Redemption Hill. It's not my judgment and my justice that you want. Go and tell him. It's his salvation. It's the grace of God that you need. Friends, you and I, even on this side of the cross, we, we live in our own sense of advent and longing and anticipating. We live now having experienced and living in this side of the establishment of God's kingdom. Jesus, having come, inaugurated God's long-awaited promised kingdom. Signs and, and experiences of his grace and his power and his leadership being ushered into the eternal reality of that kingdom through faith in him, access being made wide open through faith in Jesus Christ. But we still await, like John, the other half of the promise, the time in which the one that God would send, the king that he sent, would come and would completely and fully and finally for all of eternity establish the long-awaited kingdom of God and would finally and fully execute judgment on God's enemies. That day is going to come. Until then, the king has set his agenda. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom is here now. And to those who live on this side of the now and the not yet, who live in the longing and the anticipation of what is to come, he makes a promise too. Verse 6, Jesus says this, blessed is the one. It's as though he's going back to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, favored is the one who is not offended or scandalized by me. This is how he closes his message to John. Take this back to John. Why? Underneath the surface of it all, being in prison, proclaiming God's word, being locked up and possibly facing death for it, wondering why Jesus isn't doing what he's expecting him to do, suffering from the doubt and the discouragement and even disillusionment of his expectations not being met. Underneath all of that, what's happening in the heart of John that happens in our heart is John is facing the offensiveness of Jesus being who he's come to be. And Jesus understands that. John is scandalized by what Jesus is saying and Jesus is doing. He's not being the Jesus. He's not being the Christ. He's not being the Messiah. He's not being the king that John wants him to be and expects him to be. Wrong expectations bring this kind of offense. See, every time you and I actually see and hear the real Jesus, do you know what happens? He exposes and offends all of the 
preconceived expectations we have of him. When you actually see and hear the real Jesus, he exposes the depth of depravity in your own heart that says you're so bad off, so weak, that I actually had to come and die to take your place. When you see and when you hear the real king, amongst other things, one thing that happens is your arrogance and your pride and your self-exaltation and your self-righteousness, it all gets exposed and laid bare. The claims of Jesus as king, the cross of Jesus as king, one writer said, are offensive to our sinful hearts because they teach us regularly that we are only saved by grace alone. Seeing the real Jesus and listening to the real Jesus is always offensive and scandalous to our sinful hearts, but favored, blessed are those who hear, who see, who deal with the offensiveness and the scandal and are not yet offended by me. You realize the Jesus that all of our sinful hearts want, the the king that all of our sinful hearts want, that loves everybody exactly as they are, that makes no demands on anybody's life, that just brings everybody in exactly as they are and brings no transformation. It sounds good. It sounds nice. But it's not a love that changes anybody. It never transforms. It's only when our hearts deal with the offensiveness of the real Jesus. It's only when our hearts honestly deal with the scandal of his ministry and his good news and his gospel that our hearts are ever properly humbled and at the same time lifted up. It's that love and that love alone that's capable of bringing us to our knees. Blessed are those who who see, who hear, and who aren't scandalized by me. Go and tell John, it's not my time to lay waste to the Romans. Go and tell John, it's it's not the time for me to let him out of prison. Friends, you and I have to get Jesus' agenda right if we do not listen and see and receive, if we continue to try to layer onto Jesus all the expectations that we want to have of him, do you know what's going to happen? When difficulty comes and when hardship comes, in its wake will be disillusionment and doubt and discouragement and disappointment. If you and I allow ourselves to live as though the fullness of all that God has promised in his coming kingdom, the fullness of his final judgment and the execution of his justice, the fullness of his kingdom being established and made real here on earth is supposed to be right here and right now in our world, in our situation, no wonder we're going to find ourselves listening to the world around us and wondering maybe they're right. Is he really just another nice guy? Did I miss him? Was he really just a a good teacher after all? Because if 
he was really king, and if he's really the one, why is this happening in my life? Friends, the king has come, and he's come to offer you a place in his kingdom. He's not yet come to destroy all of his enemies. And you need to understand that's a good thing because it means there's still time. There's still time for many, and he has many in this place, many in this city. There's still time for many to hear the good news of his kingdom, the good news of his reign, the good news, the gospel of his grace, and receive him as king and be ushered into his kingdom now for all of eternity by his hand. There's still time. There's still time for you and I who have seen the real Jesus, have heard the real Jesus, who have believed upon him with our whole heart. There's still time for you and I to deepen our enjoyment of him to set aside our misplaced expectations of him, to see him more clearly and to love him more deeply as we prepare to spend all of eternity with him. There's still time. And that's a good thing because a day is going to come just as God has promised when the time will be up, when the king will return and he will return in glory. And when he returns, he is going to indeed execute God's full and final judgment against his enemies. He is going to bring the fullness of the promise of his kingdom to bear for on our life for all of eternity. But until then, we wait. We long. We anticipate. And in the now and the not yet in which we live, if you're here this morning and you would say that you are not a follower of Jesus, you do not yet know him as king, would you be willing to take the time this season to set aside all of your speculations about Jesus, all of your preconceived ideas of what he should be, all of the conditioned ideas you might have of how he should act and what he should say, and would you be willing to pick up a gospel, pick up a Bible, read the gospel according to Matthew, read the gospel according to John, would you be willing to see what you hear him say? Would you be willing to see the way he lived? Would you be willing to see him for who he really is? All the demands you might bring to him for how he proves himself to be who he says he is to you, would you be willing to set them aside? Would you be willing to come to him and ask him to help you see who he is and hear what he says for himself? I know myself, I know Ray, I know Tim, I know the pastors, I know many people here would be willing to do that with you, to read that with you. Would you be willing to do that? If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, but you would say, I'm not, I don't seem to be experiencing the, the reality of his presence even as king. Would you be willing to consider even this season as we go through these different portraits of this king that, that maybe you sought to see him through your own lens of expectation? that maybe you've layered on items to his agenda that were never there at this point in his ministry? Would you be willing to consider how maybe you've tried in your own way to push away from the requirement of obeying him as king? Maybe you tried to push away in your own, in your own heart the necessity of your life depending fully and entirely upon his grace. Maybe some of the discouragement and disillusionment and doubt. Maybe some of it can be relieved if you and I can get his agenda straight 
and we can begin for the first time or the first time in a long time to enjoy, enjoy him again as king. Friends, blessed are those who, who see what is, where most people can only see what they expect. Let me pray for us this morning, and we're going to respond to God's word together. Father, we thank you this morning that you do the work by your Holy Spirit in every heart in here and the way it needs to be done of setting right for your glory and our joy the right expectations of who Jesus is and what he does and what you've promised to do. Lord, we want to live in the fullness of joy and delight in Jesus as our King right here and right now. God, help us to see the fullness of all that he has done and all that he is continuing to do right here and right now as we long for the final fulfillment of everything you've promised. Lord, we so desperately want to pull the future down into the present and make it real. Lord, help us to be fully satisfied in who you continue to be for us right now by your spirit and your son. Lord, there are hearts in here this morning that have stumbled over Jesus, even gone to reject Jesus because they've layered on your son expectations and preconceived ideas about what he's supposed to be like that are contrary to all that you've revealed. Lord, help us by your spirit set those things aside that we might see, hear, and enjoy him. Lord, we ask that this Advent season, this time of longing and anticipation that you would do that very work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.